with the reception of new members, I'd chosen a text to preach on specifically about the church. And I want us this morning to ponder anew what should our view of the church be. When I speak of the church, I'm not referring to a building bricks and mortar. I'm referring to an assembly of people. And it's not even exclusively limited to one particular fellowship, this church, Church of the Good Shepherd, but the church universal, the Catholic universal church. Believers all across the world who are this morning worshiping with other believers. And how should we view the church? What should our perception be? How should we approach the church? Many people err in their view of the church. They consider it a relationship that is optional. It's an elective, like in college, but it's not. C.S. Lewis, when he was a young Christian, had a errant view of the church. He writes this way of his early years in Christ. He says, When I first became a Christian, about 14 years ago, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology, and I wouldn't go to churches and gospel halls. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of the church. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually, my conceit, Another word for pride, his conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just six-rate music, he says, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots. I'm not sure what those are. But elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. Obviously, C.S. Lewis matured in his understanding of what the purpose of the church is. And it's fortunate for us because of the many writings which he did that blessed the church and how he was blessed through being a part of the church. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 in the Pew Bible. It's on page 153 of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5. Page 153 of the New Testament in the Pew Bible. This is God's Word, starting in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. But, as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. 
So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. As Paul is discussing the marriage relationship, he gives this illustration which he spends quite a bit of time developing. And he relates a husband's relationship to his wife and the wife's relationship to uh, her husband as being very similar, as analogous to the church. That Christ is the groom, is the husband, and that the church is the bride. And so as he goes through this passage, he keeps drawing these parallels back and forth. As a wife submits to her husband, the church submits to her head, Jesus Christ. And as Jesus Christ has loved the church, so should the husband love his wife. And the analogy continues all throughout the passage. And I'm focusing particularly this morning on this analogy, this illustration which Paul uses because there's so much in there about what Paul has to say about the church, which he says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. First, in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Now, typically, when we think of Christ's love, we think of Christ's love being personal. Jesus loves me, this I know. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with thinking of Christ's love for us, individuals, personally, because it's true. It's accurate and it's proper that we think that way. But where we often often err is not thinking of Christ's love as it's presented here, which is for what? The church. Paul says, Christ, verse 25, Christ also loved the church. Paul doesn't draw the analogy, well, like Christ loves you as an individual. He draws the analogy, and it can only go this way, between Christ and the church. It is a different relationship than Christ has with us as individuals. It's a special relationship. Christ loved the church. The church is the bride of Christ. I'm not the bride of Christ. You are not the bride of Christ. But together, all believers, throughout all time, is the bride of Christ. And while Jesus certainly manifested love for the world, there is a particular relationship of love that is reserved for His bride, the church. The relationship is described in starkly different terms throughout Scripture. 
when compared to the way it is described of the rest of the world, there's a deeper, more intimate love for the body of believers that the world may not claim. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus makes his special relationship with the church known. If you would turn with me there, John chapter 17 is called the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays interceding for the church. In your pew Bible, it's page 87 of the New Testament. It starts in verse 1, his prayer, but we're going to pick it up in verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name, that's God's name, to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. So, Jesus is praying for a particular blessing for the church in his high priestly prayer. He's praying, he, pray, he continues to pray many other things for the church that they would be in the world, not of the world, that they would be sanctified in truth. Your word is truth. And he continues in praying, and he now is interceding for us before the heavenly throne. And then also, before the uh, Feast of the Passover, John records in verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1, again displaying his particular, Jesus' particular love for the church. He says, um, John writes, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So this love is a special love that Jesus had for us, not for the whole world, but for His followers, those who heard, those who followed Him. And in verse 25, it continues in Ephesians chapter 5. It goes on, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And here we see the manifestation particularly of this love. And Jesus gave Himself up for her. He gave Himself up for the church. This giving Himself up is described more fully in verse 2 of chapter 5. If you just flip back a page and look at that, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, it says, well, starting in verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. There's describing what Jesus did on the cross. It was a fragrant aroma. It was an offering. We've seen Him as the high priest in John 17. Here He is the sacrifice, offering Himself up as a priest, 
offering himself up to God for the church. He willingly made this sacrifice because it was the only way that the church could be redeemed. Remember in the garden, maybe, when uh, he was praying, take this cup away from me, but not my will, but yours be done. If there's any other way, take it away. There was no other way. This is the only way that he could redeem the church. And so he went to the cross and died and poured out his blood as a fragrant aroma, as an offering. And he took upon himself our sins. He died in our stead. He gave Himself up for us. That's the way that the love is demonstrated in Ephesians 5. And as, as you think about this, you, there, men are called to give themselves up for their wives in a similar fashion. To die to themselves. To die for them. And if... I don't know if any of you know of the, I forget the full name, the Titanic, Titanic Society. There is a society because of what happened when the Titanic went down. There was a motto that was, went across that ship and it was women and children first. And that motto was enforced with revolvers and several people died as they tried, men, as they tried to get upon those few boats to get to safety, they were pushed back and they pushed again in. They were pushed back and they charged again. And they were shot and killed. But other men stood by. Uh, famous men. Astor, Mr. Astor. Um, there was also Guggenheim, whose name you might recognize. There was also... Um, Major Butt, who was the um, Secretary of Defense or Secretary of War for the President, they stood by and they said, women and children first. And they got on the boats and they got away from that ship that was sinking. And that is a picture small picture of what Christ did for us and what we are called to do as husbands for our wives. And this book I have from Vision Forum, it has these quotes about the valuations of life that nobody there said, well, this guy is worth, worth millions, billions now. And this poor Czech woman with a baby they didn't weigh the values between the two. It said women and children first. And I, as I was reading those things, I was thinking, I'm glad that Jesus did not weigh His blood and what it was worth against us, a stubborn and rebellious people. But He offered Himself up, the spotless Lamb, the precious blood for the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. In verse 26 of Ephesians chapter 5, 
He goes on, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The so that at the beginning of verse 26 shows the connection between the previous verse and verse 26. He did this so that he might sanctify. Sanctification is often, we always typically think of it as a process. It's also uh, described in Scripture as a specific point in time. It's done. Sanctified. He sanctified the church. It was, she was set apart for him. Sanctified her, having cleansed her by the washing with the word. We're going to sing that a little bit later as we sing the church is one foundation. By the washing with the word. Jesus set apart the church for himself and he cleansed, washed away our iniquities so that we would be holy and blameless. Um, Calvin on this verse, he says, having mentioned the inward and hidden sanctification, being sanctified and, and cleansed, he, now Paul, now adds the outward symbol by which it is visibly confirmed. As if he had said that a pledge of that sanctification is held out by baptism. In a couple of weeks, Tammy Lee is going to be baptized. And uh, we are going to have, as Elder Huck mentioned, we are going to have a new, another inquirers class this Friday. I'll make another plea at the end of my sermon. But um, after that, we'll receive another group of members in. And that baptism is the initiatory right into the church. And it is an outward signification of what God has done inwardly. Through the washing of baptism and the hearing of the Word. Uh, Cindy Hauser referred to it earlier from Romans 10. How will they hear without a preacher? The preachers have to go out so that they can hear the Word. If they don't do that, people will perish. And so it's by the washing with the Word. The Word is absolutely critical and that's why we have to support missionaries throughout the world going forth to unreached people, people's groups, to lands where the gospel is not heard. And even in our own neighborhoods and with our own friends and families. In verse 27, Paul continues speaking about the work of Christ with the church. And it's another clause explaining why he did this. Verse 27, that he did this, that he, Jesus, might present to Himself, it's an odd phrase, isn't it? To Himself, the church, in all her glory, that He might present to Himself, the church, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The presentation imagery that's used here is what I, what I think of is when a bride is presented to her husband, to her groom, to the groom on the wedding day. 
I remember my wife, Catherine, as she went through those doors several years ago. And as those doors opened up and my first glimpse of her, her hair was all done up. She was wearing a beautiful white dress that was brand new and it was spotless. It was um, glowing white. And her face was beaming. And that's the imagery that is being used here. That the church is presented in her glory. Spotless. Holy. Blameless. And I think the way that we often view the church in the state it is now is like a baby as it comes out of the womb and it's covered in blood. It's not real pretty, but it's a beautiful sight. And you see through all those blemishes and all that blood, you see a life, a new life. And the church is like that now. It is not perfected. It is not blameless in the sense that it doesn't sin anymore. She does not sin. It is not perfect, but it is prepared to be presented as holy and blameless to Jesus Christ. And He has done this work for Himself. Did you notice who the agent is and all that that we read? Christ loved the church. He gave Himself up for her so that he might what sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she would be this is the work of Jesus Christ that he has done and on that day the church will be presented spotless holy Blameless, perfect. This does not mean that we do not seek as a church, a particular church, Church of the Good Shepherd, to grow in holiness and purity and obedience and truth. growing with all diligence. But, you and I will fail. We will fail. We will try. Lord willing, we will keep trying. We will fail again. But, Christ will not fail. His work is perfect. And on that day, the church will be presented holy and blameless. And then look with me at verse 28 and 29 of Ephesians chapter 5. He says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does for the church. Because we are members of his body, and if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, it continues and says at verse 30, of his flesh and of his 
bone. Some early manuscripts don't include that, so many of the uh, uh, recent translations, New American Standard, which we use, doesn't include it. It probably should be included. We are members of his body, of his own flesh and bone. And what, what is describing here is the relationship again of the husband and the wife being one flesh and how the husband is to care for the wife because he cares for his own body. And so then the parallel is drawn between Christ and the church. Christ is, we saw at the very beginning of this section, Christ is the head of the church. And we are the body, and He is the Savior of the body. And Jesus, it says, nourishes and cherishes that body because we are members of His body, of His flesh and blood. How does He nourish us? He nourishes us with the Word, 1 Peter 2.2. He also nourishes us by the Holy Spirit who came after He left. John 15.26, He went and the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, came. As we saw it manifested, the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And also, He intercedes for us. Romans 8.34, He walks among the churches. Revelation 2.1 He nourishes us in many ways, but He also cherishes us. And this word cherish is similar to 1 Thessalonians 2.7. It's the same Greek word where it says, We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares, cherishes for her own children. Caring tenderly providing for that child. That's the analogy that is used for Jesus caring, nourishing, and cherishing us, the church. As I said before, Jesus is not erratic like we are. He doesn't go back and forth. He's not moody. He doesn't have bad days where you lose your temper and yell at your kids or discipline them out of anger, where you lose your temper with your wife and snap back. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. I'm just sort of general. uh, Jesus does it perfectly. He nourishes, cherishes, because we are members of His own body, of His flesh, and of His bones. In verse 32 it says, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So, verse 31, you know he's not referring there to the relationship between the husband and the wife because he just says, This mystery is great, and I'm not referring to a husband and wife. I'm referring to reference to Christ and the church. Since the mystery is great, I'm not going to be able to explain it to you, but I'll give a brief stab at explaining what Paul's point is here. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Is referring to as Eve derived her flesh and bones from Adam, taken out of his side and given and created. As Eve was derived from the body of Adam, so we, 
the church derive our life, our being, our body from Christ. And as Adam lived, as Eve lived from Adam, so does the church live from Jesus' life. And we are one flesh. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And this is indeed a mystery. It's something that we can't comprehend how we all together are a body of Christ. But this is the way the Scriptures describe that body. And it has to be reiterated, this is not, this is absolutely different than Jesus' particular relationship with individuals. The relationship with the church is here described differently than the way it's described between individuals. And so how can we cast ourselves away outside of the church? How can we set ourselves apart from the sacraments, from baptism, from Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper? How can we spurn the preaching of God's Word? How can we deny ourselves the benefit of brothers and sisters in Christ encouraging us and reproving us? No, it's imperative for Christians to be a part of the body and not isolated. C.S. Lewis, uh, in another uh, section, writes, The New Testament does not envision, envis, envisage solitary religion. It does not view, it does not give us a picture of solitary religion. Some kind of regular assembly for worship and instruction is everywhere taken for granted in the epistles. So, we must be regular in practicing members of the church. Of course, we differ in temperament, people in the church. Some, like you and me, find it more natural to approach God in solitude. But we must go to church as well, for the church is not a human society of people united by their natural affinities. What he's saying here is he's saying, we, we aren't gathered together because we like each other. We are gathered together because we are the body of Christ. It's good that we like each other, but that's not the reason that we're getting together. We are getting together because we are the body of Christ. He goes on, but the body of Christ in which all members, however different, and this is his note, he rejoices in their differences, God rejoices in their differences, and by no means wishes to iron them out, but must share the common life, complementing and helping one another precisely by their differences. There are many passages that we're not going to have time to go into this morning talking about the way that the body is made up of many members and different, given different gifts by God. And together, we use those gifts and the foot cannot say to the rest of the body, see you later. The finger cannot say to the rest of the body, I'm not with you. It's together. We cannot... Well, we can. We can cut our hand off 
with a machete, but it's not pretty. And that's not the way God has called us to be as a body. We are called to be together, united in purpose, even with all the differences that we have. And so, Christ loves the church. He died for the church. He gave us the sacraments. And He particularly cherishes and nourishes the church. The Bible does not describe lone rangers. Um, Cyprian, and I think it was the 3rd century or 4th century, said, and it was quoted throughout the ages, He who has not the church as his mother cannot have God as his father. That's how they viewed the church, the necessity of us affiliating ourselves with a church, being a part of the body, being together and worshiping God. There are other sayings, many sheep without the church, many wolves within the church. So it's not a hard and fast rule. But we should show our concern for the Lone Ranger that you know who says he has no need for the church. Christ has that particular affection and care for his body. We are a part of his body. How can we separate ourselves from that? Now, you know, C.S. Lewis was talking about the solitary religion. That's absolutely necessary. Your religion, your faith cannot be Sunday morning faith. It cannot be you come to church on Sunday and you think, well, I'm part of the church, I'm okay. No, your faith needs to be an abiding faith that manifests itself throughout the week. but also manifests itself on Sunday, the Lord's Day, when we gather together and as we care for one another throughout the week. Now, just a couple quick applications. And I'll give you some references. You can write them down if you like. Uh, Verses you can look at. Some applications. First of all, the obvious ones for the marriage relationship. Wives, it's, it's as obvious as the words you read, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Cherish and nourish them as Christ does for the church. And then particularly, what is your view of the church? Do you love the church? And sometimes it's easy to be philosophical and say, oh yeah, I love the church and not have it in any sort of practical, tangible way. Christ loved the church. He died for the church. That was tangible. And I'm not just referring to this particular church, but the universal church, the church everywhere, the people that are down the street worshiping God and Jesus Christ right now, the people that are in Fiji this morning, or whatever, when is it? Is that yesterday? Yesterday, or tomorrow, whenever it is, worshiping Jesus. That body around the world. What is your view of the church? Do you grieve when brothers and sisters suffer? One member suffers, the whole body suffers. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 and 27. 
Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Do you grieve when one part of the body suffers? Do you pray for those in chains, as we're commanded in Hebrews 13.3? Remember the prisoners, as also in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are in the body. We're all together. Collections of money for the poor in Jerusalem that Paul requested for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, Romans 15.26. And sometimes we can make it very other than what's here, but also, do you love a local church? If you're visiting today, are you a part of a local church body? Are you, have you affiliated? Have you become a member? If you're opposed to, quote, membership on a piece of paper, have you put yourself under a particular church? This is something somebody asked me um, last week in preparation for the new members being received this week, a college student. And this is something I push over and over again, but not enough. It's for college students to affiliate themselves with a church when they're in college. Because they're in college for four, five, six, sometimes seven years, right, Nick? Uh, it's a joke. Um, it's not seven years. Um, they, uh, they're in church for this many years, and they don't join a church, become a, particular mem- become a member of a church, because they're just temporary. And then if they go off to graduate school, and they go for five, six, seven, eight years, and, well, they don't become a member because they're just temporary. Well, then they get a postdoc for one or two years after that. Of course, that's only two years, so they're not going to join a church then. And then... After that, they move somewhere and they're not sure about how certain their job is if they're going to get tenure. And so they'll wait till they get tenure after seven or eight years. And then they get tenure and, well, you know, I've done well all these years never being a part of a particular church, never being a member. And that's the way we bounce around. Become a part of a church. If it's not this church, a Bible-believing church. Become a part, affiliate yourselves, involve yourselves in that church. Love the church. Inquirer's class is this Friday. If you haven't affiliated yourself with the church, come find out about Church of the Good Shepherd. And finally, just a plea. Christ died so that we may have eternal life. He died so that the church would be presented holy and blameless. If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never become a part of the Bride of Christ, I encourage you to do that today. Today, now is the time for you to become a part of that wonderful bride that Christ died for.